Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, the podcast designed to help you identify at least one proven practical approach to let you run a more successful and sustainable business or team, hopefully in less than 30 minutes. And I think we'll probably get it done pretty quickly with this gentleman we have with us today. He's extremely curious. He is always looking at things from multiple perspectives. He is hungry to learn. He's a voracious leader. If I want to know about the latest books to read, I can reach out to Chris and he'll say, try this one. And chances are I have not read it because he's way ahead of the curve on that. He's very much a family guy, loves his family and works hard to be a good dad and husband. He's a combination, very unusual combination of being extremely precise and yet highly intuitive. And the thing that uh, I like most about Chris is he loves golf maybe more than I do. So please help me welcome the Chief Technology Officer from Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, Chris Helsel, to the Ed Epley Experience. Good morning, Chris. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Ed. I hope to uh, live up to that great introduction. Well, you you made it easy. I had to cut the list off because I could have kept writing. You know, I was looking at your background and something I discovered that I did not know is you started out in a construction company, right? That's right. Yeah. I had worked at a few companies before Goodyear, which is, of course, where I kind of made the name as chief technology officer. And um, uh, in those experiences, I worked with refining technology. So basically the construction and how you put together a refinery for petrochemicals, as well as for Babcock and Wilcox, albeit there, it was mainly around the nuclear power plants for submarines, aircraft carriers. Oh, okay. So I had those experiences before coming to tires. I don't know that this is fair, but it seems like nuclear power plants have a lot more complexity than a tire. Is that a mischaracterization by yours truly when I say that? Actually, funny you say that, but when I said to my friends I was leaving that industry to come to tires, they said, well, geez, you're going to (laughs) retire. That There's nothing to it, right? You basically injection mold a tire and you know, they're round black and out the back of a factory and that's it. And what you really find, quite honestly, is a tire is one of the most complex engineered products there is. And actually the thing that strung together all those experiences was I got into the very emerging technology of virtual product development. And as that tool made its way from industries who made things out of steel and aluminum, Ultimately, it made its ways into tires. And that's where the tire complexity comes in is number one is the nature of the materials. They're what's called hysteretic. They deflect enormously. The structure itself has composites in it to carry the load. You have contact with the road, which you know brings its own complexity. And lastly, is the dynamics of everything that happens in a tire. And so you might think, geez, the tire versus nuclear reactor, but actually modeling and trying to design a tire is one of the most challenging things. And in fact, part of what we do at Goodyear is we collaborate with Sandia National Laboratories because they try out their tools they use for their mission, which is readiness of the nuclear arsenal of the US. They try them out on tires. We've had over a 25 year partnership wow. in that because of the complexity of modeling tires. Wow. 
I did not know that. You know, listening to you describe it that way and the product that virtually all of us use a tire, right? The vast majority of people have some form of transportation, far more do than don't, let's put it that way. And it just occurred to me, I wonder, for example, what's the range of temperatures that a truck tire goes through? You know, you got to go all the way back to where it it starts its life, which is in a factory and you have to cure the tire. So the first thing that has to happen, and actually why we're named Goodyear was after Charles Goodyear, who invented the concept of vulcanization of rubber. And basically it's when you put sulfur in with the natural rubber, it takes on a hardened property because without that, you know, the tire would wear so quickly. So you get, you know, up there into the several hundred degrees. And, and then when you get out into the actual applications, you know, in truck tires, et cetera, you know, you don't get to that point, but you get significant temperature into a tire. And, And if you just think about the operating temperature outside, and then you could easily add another, you know, 50 to 100 degrees to it and, and you get a concept. At one time, I worked in open wheel racing at Goodyear. And actually, when a, tires would do their laps, let's say yes. on an Indy car, yeah. you'd actually take a probe and measure. You'd get up into the 250 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, in that tire. You could be burned. You could burn. Yeah. You don't want to put your hand on it and leave it there. Wow. So the, the operating temperatures are significant. Yeah. Well, I would like to talk more about the technology aspects of your product, but I know our audience wants to know more about leadership and the running a team and a, an organization. So we're going to deflect to that. But I don't believe I've ever had anybody on the program who's been part of such an iconic brand, such a name brand for so long what, 120 years almost at this point for the company? That's correct. A bit over 120 years. I'm thinking that the doing things the Goodyear way must be evident from the time you start interviewing. I mean, the culture must be in a good way, heavy. It must be intense. There must be a tremendous amount of inertia or momentum to do things their way. Yeah, I think you got to start just with the understanding. We talked a little bit about tires. Tire is a safety product. And, you know, without your connection to the road, which is the only thing doing that through basically palm size patches at four locations on your vehicle, you know, you're going to just fly off into the, you know, (laughs) into a field somewhere. You're making me a little nervous about getting into my car, right? I'm just thinking about that. I never thought about it. Just four palm-sized patches of contact. Okay, keep That going. is it. And, and so all the forces of a vehicle go through that. So you got to start with, look, it's extremely important that it's a safety product. It's predictable, reliable, and up for the task. And no offense to your followers here, they chances are they abuse them because they yeah. don't keep enough air in them. Right. And if you start with that, we had a slogan that was always protect our good name. So it starts with you always have to do the right thing by that safety culture. But from there, you have to understand it's a highly competitive industry and one that's going to undergo a lot of transformation that we will probably get to later in the discussion. But mobility is really changing. So so as much as we have to keep things the same, you know, and repeatable, we have to prepare ourselves for some real change coming. Oh, yeah. And I think that's that duality of leadership that really forces you to raise the game, right? You're immediately making me think of the need to get better at something at the same time you got to be willing to abandon it to go to something else. That's correct. And and those choices are hard. Oh, because, yeah. You know, you, you said it, you've been around 120 years doing things that way. But, you know, it's the typical and you, you mentioned books, right? What got you here won't get you there. Marshall Goldsmith, right? 
Yeah. I think is the, the author, right? Yeah. Let's talk about your need to read. I don't think it's a want. I think it is a need. I think you'd almost give up air before you would give up learning. <laughs> so where did that come from? Is that just in your DNA or was that something that was nurtured in you by your family? How did that happen? You know, I don't ever remember my father reading. He was a machinist and worked really hard, but my mom was a huge reader. I don't know that I ever remember never seeing a book in her hand. Although I'd say they were mainly at that time, Harlequin romances. That's not my style, but it's still that reader, you know, seeing people and being able to model that people have a book in their hand. I also found going through, you know, my education in university, I learned best by reading. I could sit in a lecture and I was interested, but it didn't soak in until I can actually take a look at the text myself. So is that why you roll your eyes when I'm facilitating a session with the team? Uh, I'm going to plead the fifth on that, Ed. (laughs) I got him, folks. He wasn't prepared for that. (laughs) I'll go back to my comment, Ed. I'm always entertained. How's that? There you go. That's good. Do you think in a role where you study leadership like yours, where you work really hard to be the very best leader and manager for the team, that you can be exposed to too many ideas? You know, I do. I was going to say, there's the quote, you know, leaders are readers. Yeah. But, you know, you only learn to be a leader by doing. Yeah. So so you got to be careful that it it doesn't just paralyze you like, oh, well, there's got to be even a better idea, better idea, better idea. I think that, you know, you read something, you say, well, I'm going to try that, then try it. Then you might look for something to enhance that learning. But, you know, that has to go hand in hand. You can't just read, read, read. Knowledge is power when combined with action, right? Right, right. I'm curious about the balance that you have to strike between what needs to get done and what could be done and what the market's willing to accept. Because as you mentioned, it, people want safety. And maybe now more than ever, safety becomes on people's minds for a variety of reasons. How do you decide how much, how fast to push for change? You know, I think you got to start with, number one, what yourself. I feel like I have a very high change aptitude. And I I almost have to be careful, especially because making my way into more of an executive role, that I'm not hitting the team with too much. And in fact, that's one of the things that I've gotten some great coaching on is situational awareness around what am I doing to my team? which is really probably one of the most important things that I probably learned is you cast a big shadow. And and so I used to come in on Mondays after reading on the weekend and, hey, I saw this, I saw that. <laughs> and I do that over and over. And, and a couple of them who were probably the most bold said to me, what the hell do you want me to do with this? Yeah. Right. Eventually. Yeah. And I was like, well, nothing. I just thought you'd be interested. Well, they don't <laughs> know that. And so I was probably yo-yoing my team around. Oh, yeah. So I think the number one thing is to look in the mirror and say, you know, am I being clear? Am I helping bring clarity to my team? Am I helping bringing focus or am I actually becoming a distraction? And so sticking with one of the ideas and doing it and doing it really well is probably more important than having the ultimate idea. A good example is we did some work recently with the playing to win framework of Laughley Martin, and it took us nearly, you know, half a year to come up with just step one, which is our aspirations. 
And that was a real learning of how powerful it is to do something and do it really well. Oh, yeah. And that includes the communication and alignment. And, and that was more important than probably bringing another new idea, you know. So I think that's a learning in terms of where I should draw the line. Yeah. And recognizing your own bias, which are you be biased and take on too much or too little. I think it would help the audience to get some appreciation for the complexity of the organization that you lead. So how many locations, how many people, you might even try different time zones. So explain that for the audience, because that will help them have some appreciation for the challenges that you have in leading and managing that org. Okay. So it's a bit over 2000 associates. You might imagine I have a location where we do a lot of new mobility innovation. We call it our innovation lab in market type testing, trial, building of digital solutions. That's in San Francisco. In Texas, I've got proving grounds for testing products. Also in in Brazil, Latin America. You then move to Akron, where we've got one of our two largest innovation centers. You then go over to Luxembourg and Hanau, Germany for another time zone and Miraval, France for another large proving ground. We also do some some winter testing in, in Northern Europe. Then you move your way over to China where we have a significant development center to support all the emerging new OEs coming in China. So you might almost argue the sun rarely sets on what we have to manage. Fortunately, I'm blessed with a, a very talented team of leaders across that geography, right? How many direct reports do you have? I'm running about 12 at the moment. And if you understand, eight eight of them are truly technical leaders. The other four are support functions, which, you know, if I were to say, you know, the um, the thing, one of, the, one of my biggest learnings has been how important those support functions really are to what you're trying to get done, you know. Of being able to connect it and make everything work. Right. What's your thoughts about a team that big? That's a big team. I, I wouldn't want any bigger. <laughs> but I think it does force, you know, and I know there's a lot of debate about those spans of control. It forces, you know, I got to give them a lot more ownership. I can't be in their details. And so in one sense, that probably drives me to be a little better leader and not a director. So I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. I think if it got too much bigger, you just can't even help. You can't maintain continuity with each one and what they're dealing with. But it does force you to give them a little more keys to their kingdom, right? Which is good. Under normal conditions, when no pandemic is going on, how often would you have that group together physically? Physically, we'd be together at least twice to four times a year, physically. We meet absolutely weekly as a team, as well as I have one-by-ones with each one every single week. And, you know, I pulled that from high output management, Andrew Grove. Andy Grove, yeah. Yeah. You got me really just a ton of questions going on structurally about that. But I think in fairness to the audience, I don't want to take us down that rat hole, but that's a very interesting dynamic that you have with that, with all those time zones and whatnot. I'm even thinking that no matter when you meet now virtually, somebody's very much inconvenienced, aren't they? Yeah. And typically it's Asia. Yeah. Because most any other shift you make puts somebody in the middle of the night, you know, so you'll get them at seven at night with a seven in in the morning in the U.S. Now, what I do though, is all my one by ones with Asia, I do extremely early in the morning here, six, like 6 a.m., 
and to at least give them something, yep. you know, Oh yeah. those poor folks, they'll tend to do their normal day and then they have another three, four hours when Akron wakes up. Right. So that's, it's a tough road to hoe to be in that region. You got to give them a lot of respect for that. When you started out in management, I assume that was maybe at Babcock and Wilcox or one of your first jobs, you were, you probably got your first taste of management. Who strongly influenced you and, and caused you to go, I, I want to be not necessarily that person, but I want to be like them. I want to be respected. I want to be effective like them. Can you describe one or two people? I'm okay if you don't want to name names, but. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So one thing I'll just correct there is I never led anybody until I was almost 11 years into my career. Oh, wow. And, and in fact, when I was first approached to even be a first level team leader, and it was here at Goodyear. I rejected the offer and said I had no interest in it. I wanted to be a technical professional my entire career. And I was given a bit of the, well, you should try it, right? But I'd say my first leader who really impressed me was, was at Babcock and Wilcox. And his name was Ray Resch, had been somebody there as that first level leader for a very long time. And he just had a very, a very kind of a, a bit of a, especially for new, a newer engineer, just a real approachable. You know, you could come in and talk about whatever you needed to. And, and I think the, the neatest thing I would say he taught me was a bit of the, you got to be humble and don't think you have all the answers. You might imagine you came out, I came out of school, latest technology, able to do these high powered calculations on computers. So, so I still remember it, right? Because it was nuclear industry. You needed sign off by by your leaders on your work and i walked in with this you know pages and pages you know you might have an inch thick of analysis laid it out and you wanted to have a discussion on is this good enough right and i'm thinking to myself what's he going to do and he reached to his his bookshelf and pulled out the most beat up copy of rourke's stress and strain (laughs) goes to a page scribbles something on the page he says well what did you get for such and such a calculation and I named it and he shows me his calculation, which was in a couple percent that he did by hand in a matter of minutes. So that was really impressed upon me is if you're going to lead technical professionals, you better know your stuff. You know, there's a lot of responsibility here, but also it gives you that credibility as a leader. From that yeah. day forward, you know, whatever Ray said went because I was like, wow, how could somebody do that? And, and yet be so personable, but yet so technical on top of things. So that was really, really impactful. One other one was when I did start getting a taste for leadership, there was a leader here at Goodyear, John Bauer. And and whenever an opening would come that I thought I was interested in, I would shoot John a note and explain what I thought he was looking for in this role and why I was it. And actually, my current admin, Cindy Griffin, was his admin. And she would, she'd call me up, say, come on down. And I used to call it my dear John meeting where John would explain to me why I'm not going to get this particular one. Right. And John gave me this advice, which I thought was great. John would say, he said, Chris, you just got to remember every day you wake up when you're in a role, you got to produce. And so you got to make sure what you think you want to do, you can really be motivated to do. Because, you know, to keep moving, you need to be head and shoulders. It's not, yeah, I did an okay job and check the box. So John's advice of no role is checking the box. I thought that was another good, really leader lesson early on. I'm sure. One of the benefits of being around organizations the size of the ones you have been part of is 
the opportunity to see so many different kinds of styles of management and leadership, it gives you a better sense of, well, what are my options and what are my choices? Has your definition of what it means to be a great leader changed much in the last 20 years? Oh, yeah. I'm sure others who are listening to this can relate. When I think back to what I was, I really stunk. (laughs) I mean, I get it. (laughs) It was 2013 that I really feel I learned. And here at Goodyear, I've been blessed. They put together a really nice leadership program with Harvard, sponsored by the current CEO, Rich Kramer, and his staff. Part of that was, you know, you, you got into a stretch role. And I was put into a stretch role to lead a business. And it was a business that when I went into it, had some challenges, but despite that, it was very successful. It was a highly profitable business, one of our smaller ones, but you could lead it end to end. And the coach that I was assigned, Joe Use, who had some experience at GE, he continues to do some work with us here at Goodyear. Joe said, this could be a great assignment for you, he said, because you're not going to be the smartest one in the room with respect to exactly what it is you're leading. He says, in fact, you don't know anything about it. So you're going to need to learn to lead. I think the number one thing I learned from that and that I've carried forward is you got to learn to ask questions. And actually, when I started that role, all I did was, you know, I asked for two names of people I should meet with. Then I'd ask them, well, what, you know, what do they think about the business? What do we need to do? And then I kept asking for, give me two more names. And until the names repeated, I did that and used it to build out basically the roadmap with the team on how we wanted to transform ourselves and uh, use that for three years in that role. But it really came from just recognizing I can't tell anybody here what to do because I don't understand what they do. <laughs> I had to learn it. Right. Has the pandemic caused you to be different or focus on different things as a leader and a manager? I think the thing actually as a leader team it really impressed upon me, you know, when we it hit, it hit really hard and fast, like many companies in the middle of March. And both CEO Rich Kramer and CFO Darren, Darren Wells, I really was impressed and came away with a learning of how they were able to just look, we got to simplify what we do, what we focus on, and we got to communicate the heck out of it. Right. Right. And I would say, look, there's nothing, nothing rocket science in there. But when you think about leading organizations, the more you can simplify, the more you can align and focus and communicate, 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 I think it just reinforced how good you've got to be at that, right? And in a time like that, those skills really pay huge dividends. And and so I'd say I walked away from that saying, of course, I knew those things, but man, I can never be good enough at them. How's that? Well, and I think it's so easy to not want to spend time on those fundamentals when there's so much else you got to get done. And you can rationalize, I don't have time or I can't, in air quotes, waste time doing that when this other stuff that's real most matters rather than saying that direction again or reinforcing something that we've talked about and going back to it again and again and again. And that most of us as executives really get bored quickly with doing that. So I'm with you though. I think the need to over-communicate in times like right now, it's a great reminder. Well, we always promise that the audience is going to get at least one proven practical idea that will help them run a more effective and successful business. I know you've got a number of things you could offer. And I'm going to ask you that one thing. But before we hear that one thing that you want to recommend, I want to come back to two or three books that you would grab if the house was on fire. 
if you could, what's at a minimum one book that you would say, man, I got to keep that book because that's really good stuff. Yeah. The number one is the seven habits of highly effective people. If there's one book and the reason I mentioned that one, Ed, is I come back and I actually have reread that book on average every two years. And so I think I've read that book six times. Neat. My last trip to Europe right before pandemic, I've read it again. It's just the one that I think embodies so many of the ideas, you know, being a learner. I recommend that one to anybody who asks, number one. And if you've read it, probably you need to spend time with it again. Whenever I read it again, I say, man, I still stink at that, you know? So (laughs) mine is probably how to win friends and influence people. Same thing. The second book I would say would be probably whatever I was almost currently reading. I just finished the 14 principles, I believe, of Jeff Bezos by Anderson. Boy, clarity, simplicity in terms of principles. I mentioned we we did work as a team on our aspirations, bold goals. We're working now on what are the principles in terms of how we should have our minds and behaviors behind that. And I think, you know, the clarity of how Amazon did that with their principles and then drive that to me is right now top of my list of one of the things I'm trying to do. So it'd be one that I would grab because man, I'm, I'm working with it right at the moment. Well, and you get to see firsthand day after day, the impact of focusing on those principles, what they've done for an organization like yeah. Amazon and how they've touched so many people. Yeah. And maybe a last one, because I don't want to just sound like I'm a business geek, although I am, would be the Theodore Roosevelt biography trilogy. They're big, thick. I really enjoyed those. And as a leader, some of the things he tried to do, the pragmatic nature of Theodore Roosevelt, you know, I mean, he was a Democrat, he was a Republican, he was, he embraced some diversity, he was going through times in the country that they were dealing with a lot of, well, geez, what is, what does some of these things mean about the environment? And, and yet he was very pro-business and how do you balance all of those and just the adventurer, the learner, it's a very inspirational leader for me. I would probably grab those But I think my arms are pretty full now because those are pretty three big volumes. (laughs) I think they are too. The journey that Teddy Roosevelt went through to become who he was, he could have easily died as a child. And then he could have easily died several times in the journeys that he took to test himself and push himself further. It is a fascinating story. I've, I've read a lot about him. I would recommend him to the audience as well. Chris, what's that one thing that I've got to do? And if I do this, I'm much more likely to be successful in managing and leading others. I think the thing that has struck me, and again, I'll go back to the simplicity, focus, communicate, is I'm going to throw out the idea of make things explicit. And let let me give just a little color behind this. We went and recently one of my leaders talked to some of his first line leaders, asking him, what's the purpose of your job? And we were really surprised at the answers we got back. And what that really said to us was, man, are we doing a poor job being clear? Because if you just think about, if you want to get results out of an organization, you need everybody to understand what their part is, right? Imagine a football team where the guard doesn't understand they have to block, right? And so that to me This is really forcing me to think about where are all the areas I assume everybody knows, right? Knows what they're supposed to do, what their role is, what we're trying to accomplish. 
And it probably comes down to being better, once again, at that simplify, focus, communicate. But I would encourage everybody, go out and test some of your assumptions. You know, just ask, ask people, hey, you know, what do you think is the number one thing that you got to, you know, your role has to deliver to us as an organization? And make sure that those answers line up with how you think your construct is put together. It told us we've got work to do. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's OK. But, you know, it tells you where to start rather than sometimes it's too easy to start with. Well, of course, I need better people. Right. You know, right. I don't have the right people. Well, heck, if you're not aligned on what you expect and you haven't given them some opportunity to develop their capability to do it, it's pretty hard to jump to that third conclusion. Right. I would agree. So so I'd say make things explicit. He's Chris Telsel. He's the chief technology officer for Goodyear Tire and Rubber. He's a person that I think all of us could learn something from about how to do our jobs more effectively. Chris, if somebody wanted to reach out to you to learn a little bit more or to ask a question, what's the best way for them to do that? I'd say email Chris underscore Helsel at Goodyear.com or I'm on LinkedIn. And he's a great communicator, as you can tell from the conversation we've had today. Chris, thanks so much for taking some of your precious time to share with our listeners here on the Ed Epley Experience. Well, hey, Ed, I appreciate it. I always love connecting with you. I love it all the more when we're chasing a white ball. So (laughs) we'll find some times to do that, I'm sure. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills. 